it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Yes, Mary Walter sitting in for Brian Kilmeade. So happy to be here with you, of course, because Brian's got such an amazing audience. You guys are great. And we have some amazing guests for you this hour. Joining us later this hour, Lieutenant Colonel Alan West will be with us. But we're going to start this hour off with Jonathan Turley, constitutional law professor, George Washington Washington University, and a Fox News contributor. Find him on Twitter at Jonathan Turley. Jonathan Turley, thank you for joining us. I have so many questions for you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for having me. Uh, so, so watching all of this happen yesterday, I got nothing done yesterday because of the craziness. I think like most people, I thought, all right, this is a done deal in and out. You know, Hunter Biden's going to get the deal of a lifetime, a deal nobody else is going to get. And it's going to be rubber stamped because it's in Delaware. And that is not at all what happened. Can you, in a couple of sentences, put this, what happened, into something very easy to understand for people who didn't have the time to sit around yesterday watching? Well, I think the problem for the Department of Justice is that the plea agreement was a sort of a a wink and a nod uh, deal uh, between the Justice Department and Hunter Biden. The problem is you can't say that uh, in a plea bargain. And so the court has an obligation to confirm that the parties uh, know precisely what the uh, agreement means and uh, what are the obligations of both the government and the defendant? Uh, it's amazing because she just asked a threshold question on the implications of the agreement, and it just immediately fell apart. And the reason is that neither side could say what most of us were assuming about the agreement, that this was an effort at a closeout agreement. But they can't say that. Uh, the, the Department of Justice is telling Congress that it will not turn over evidence and make witnesses available because there's an ongoing investigation. So what the judge was asking is, is this it? Um, are you still going to investigate Hunter? And the Department, said, the Department of Justice said, yeah, we, we may still investigate. Well, that then collapsed the entire deal. So the question to me that begs to be asked here is, there was part of this deal, though, that he would get some immunity for any crime he may have committed that we don't know about yet, but is related to tax evasion or the gun charges, right? And so, so that was in there, and that's when the judge asked the question. That brought that to light because that was the disagreement over that, that his team thought that he would you know, have immunity no matter what comes to play. And, and the drug charges as well. And um, the, the DOJ then said, no, that wasn't the agreement. Was that not the agreement? Or did the G- once it came to light, the DOJ had to say that wasn't the agreement because everyone knows that you just can't make an agreement like that? Well, I can't believe the Department of Justice put that language in there 
uh, without knowing its meaning or its implications. Uh, what they did not expect is for a judge to actively question them about the meaning. Uh, and this shows how really bizarre this whole thing is, uh, that that language is indeed sweeping. Uh, the judge did an excellent job. Most judges feel an obligation to defer to the Justice Department uh, and to sign off on these agreements. But in this case, uh, the judge just wanted the most basic information about what this means. And so, you know, you now have this this terrible situation in the view of the Department of Justice. They have to have clarity, and they don't want clarity. You know, they don't want to say, well, look, judge, this is a sweetheart deal, and we just want to make sure we never have to prosecute the president's son. That's not going to go over very well. But then the question is, what do they do now? Normally, when a defendant walks away from a, uh, a plea bar, uh, bargain, particularly in court, uh, the Department of Justice will unleash the hounds. You know, they'll usually bring everything, uh, charge everything, and seek uh, significant jail. Uh, that is almost inevitably the response of the Department of Justice. The question is, will it be the response here? The court gave them a month. And we'll see. I mean, it's going to make this look even worse if the Department of Justice comes back and tries to finalize the sweetheart deal despite this problem. Right. So the DOJ is the one that crafted this deal. They're the ones who made the offer to the defense, right? So this is the DOJ's deal, which the judge asked, is there any precedence for this, um, I think it was with the pretrial, asked if there was any pr- uh, precedence for a pretrial diversion in a gun case, to which they said no. So now we know this has never been done before. This is a one-time only sale and only f- if your last name is Biden. And this is what the DOJ put together. Is this corruption? Well, I think that we've been uh, really seeing evidence of that for a long time. I mean, first of all, there's obvious corruption that uh, involved uh, the Biden family in terms of the influence peddling scheme that may have produced millions for uh, the Bidens. But there's also a corruption of the process. Uh, the, the, the way the Department of Justice has handled this case is like no other case I've ever seen as a criminal defense attorney. Uh, it's just bizarre. I mean, the evidence here is ample of a variety of crimes that the Justice Department just walked away from. And the most worrisome thing for me that came out of the IRS whistleblower uh, hearing is that one of them said that there was an agreement on the table with Hunter Biden's team that they would extend the statute of limitations for the 2014-2015 crimes. Those are the tax violations related to Burisma. Those are the big ticket items. Right. And what the whistleblower said is that Weiss allowed it to lapse, even though he could have extended it, allowed the time to expire. Well, if that's true, then we're talking about a very serious uh, type of corruption of the process. I mean, there's no possible reason that I can think of for the Department of Justice to let a statute of limitations expire when they didn't have to. Why would a prosecutor ever do that, particularly when you're negotiating a plea agreement? So that's one of the things that Congress needs to run down in its continuing investigation. 
Uh, there are other aspects like that. Uh, you, you know, the Department of Justice prosecutor tipping off the Biden team, even contacting the transition team for the Biden administration, letting them know that they were going to try to interview Hunter, that they were going to search a key storage room. None of that makes sense. And, uh, you know, the Congress, unfortunately, is going to be the only body that can get to the bottom of this because the Department of Justice is accused of this uh, wrongdoing. Now, I, I have a question about the deal that they tried to get where he would not be allowed to be, he couldn't be prosecuted for anything that was associated with the, the drug charges, the, the drug issues, the the um, tax issue, and, and the gun issues. So if we found out during um, an investigation, they find out down the road that, you know, dealing with the drugs, you know, somebody got killed. And Hunter Biden somehow connected to it. And obviously that's far-fetched. He wouldn't have been able to have been brought up on charges then, right? Well, that's what the judge was asking. And, you know, the Department of Justice could have always argued that its interpretation didn't extend that far. But the question is, why would you ever use sweeping language like that? Uh, and the, the fact is also that the Hunter Biden team said publicly that they believe this was a clo- basically a closeout plea agreement. And I can understand that because as a defense attorney, I would never have had my client sign anything but a closeout. You know, I, I would, the, the threshold issue would be, look, if you want my client to plead, you need to close out the crimes uh, that we've been talking about. I don't want to come back uh, to find you charging them on something else. Right. Uh, but this obviously went further and even included crimes that were not uh, being investigated. But I, what I think is weird about this is that uh, the Hunter Biden team made clear that that was their understanding, and the Department of Justice never corrected them, went on for weeks never correcting them, and in fact would have signed this plea agreement with that public understanding of Hunter if this judge hadn't tripped the wire. And, you know, it, it just it shows how weird this is. And at some point, the American people are going to lose their patience. I mean, it, this is honestly the strangest thing I've ever seen. Now, if and I don't have a lot of time here, so I'm trying to ask like the, the big questions. It, so now they have to go back and they have 30 days that they have to come up with a new deal. The two teams have to come back with a new deal. Is the, is there a, a clock ticking on any future statute of limitations or anything else that Hunter could possibly be charged with that now they get an extra month now to drag their heels? Well, there could be. We don't know because the Department of Justice really hasn't – it doesn't seem to have aggressively investigated many of these crimes. Uh, for example, there's the Farah crime that was raised by the court, not by the Department of Justice. When the, when the plea bargain came out, the first response I had was, where's the FARA violation? I mean, right. it's, you know, it, it is clear in my view that if you use the standard they used against Paul Manafort, then Hunter Biden should have been indicted for FARA years ago. It, it, with, Hunter, with, with Paul Manafort, he virtually said hello, and they handed him a charge under FARA. Uh, now, five years later, with all of these emails, uh, they still are – sort of contemplating their navel over at the Justice Department uh, and saying that they may or may not still charge Farah. It's, it's, it's so different from, from how they, they reacted to the Trump cases. Of course. Well, of course it is. Uh, what, was there any punishment for the lawyer who called and tried to trick the court the night before? 
Well, you know what? I don't know what happened there. It could have been a misunderstanding. Uh, I, I, I'm surprised that any attorney would try such a dumb maneuver. Uh, you know, the attorney in this case from Latham Watson said that uh, she never suggested that she was, in fact, the filing uh, party. They said that they contacted the opposing attorneys. Uh, so I don't know really if there's anything more there that can be established for the court. What I do find interesting is that, once again, the Biden legal team is doing everything it can to keep information from the public. I mean, that's what the most interesting aspect, in my view, you know, that their first response to a filing to inform the court of highly damaging information is don't let the public see this. And they claimed that, you know, this is non-public information. Well, all this information was public. But there's this sense of entitlement in the, in the, in the Biden legal team. And I think that's really reinforced by the media that they can control what the public sees and hears about the case. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, where, where do we go from here? Where do, where do you think this goes? What happens here? Well, they have a month, uh, but the Congress is not slowing down. And you now have uh, the speaker saying we need to move towards an impeachment inquiry. I think that is a fair move. I mean, I, I think that the, the Congress doesn't just have powers. It has obligations. And I think the speaker was absolutely right. You know, he said, what am I supposed to do? You know, I've got a, a trusted source raising a bribery allegation uh, with the FBI. I have a, a president who has been lying for years. It's now very clear that President Biden has lied repeatedly to the public. I've got millions of dollars going to the Biden family in this labyrinth of accounts that seem designed to hide those payments. So what are we supposed to do? Just walk away? And the answer is obviously no. They have to get answers. And since the Department of Justice seems unwilling to do that, it falls to Congress. Yeah, it's it's going to be interesting because it's going to take a lot to unravel all of this because I think it goes all the way back to Obama and probably, you know, before Trump even ran. I think there's just, it goes so far back. It's going to take a, a long time to unravel all of this. Jonathan Turley, thank you so much for joining us. I had so many questions for you and I was so excited when I saw that we had you on. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You can find Jonathan at Jonathan Turley on Twitter. By the way, you can find me on Twitter at Mary. Walter Radio. Uh, later this hour, we'll speak with Lieutenant Colonel Alan West. If you want to jump in, 866-408-7669 on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Both sides, all opinions. It's Brian Kilmeade. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. I'm Mary Walter sitting in for Brian Kilmeade. We were just speaking with Jonathan Turley. We were talking to him about what happened yesterday with Hunter Biden's sweetheart deal. It didn't go so sweet for poor Hunter. And, you know, it's it's true. He made a comment. He said, you know, there's there's his his legal team was just so sure that they this was going through like they, they were so confident. And of course they are, because, you know, it's it's Hunter Biden and everything goes Hunter's way. Hunter has never 
uh, been really held accountable for his actions. Now, as part of the deal, it's interesting because before this, you know, this happened, this deal was made today, we knew it was going to happen. And, you know, they they found the cocaine in the White House, right? And so, of course, everybody's like, oh, it's Hunter's. Because, I don't know. If you're playing a game of Clue, you would say Hunter Biden in the White House with the cocaine, right? Now, we don't know that. They said we can't find it. We couldn't lift fingerprints off of the package. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm sorry, healthily skeptical about that. But he wasn't being drug tested, remember? But now... In order to to maintain what's going on here, in order to continue to negotiate, the judge told him that he has to keep his nose clean. <laughs> um, <laughs> come on, that was funny. He has to look for a job. Uh, this is under the diversion agreement for the gun charge. He has to remain sober, submit to drug testing, avoid committing other crimes for two years, and agree not to own a firearm again. And so now, in the meantime, he also has to look for a job. But what's interesting, you know, go back to his lawyer, you know, with with the bong out on the balcony in California. And all these people, all over, the apologists were like, oh, you know, come on, give the guy a break. He's, re-, you know, Hunter's a recovering addict. It's like you're hearing Hunter's a recovering addict. He's with his lawyer at his apartment. Apparently, Hunter was there. Those were the reports Hunter was with his lawyer. And then they show a picture of his lawyer out on the balcony, you know, lighting up a bong. And it was like, oh, well, it's legal in California. It's fine. Do you drink alcohol? It's the same as drinking alcohol. I'm like, I don't drink when I'm working, though. And if Hunter was there, they were supposedly working. And Hunter is supposedly recovered, right? He is supposedly, I know it's a daily fight. I have friends who have gone through this. I get it. But one thing you don't do around them is smoke marijuana. I don't do it anyway. But it would be one of those things you wouldn't do around someone who has such a tenuous grip on sobriety. It just doesn't make any sense, which makes me question Hunter's quote unquote fully recovered, uh, you know, and his sobriety. It, It just it's to me that just showed how confident and how brazen they were in this is all going to go away once again, Hunter. Don't worry. Daddy's clearing the path for you. Hunter, Joe Biden is, was the first tiger mom. No, no, the first helicopter parent. That's it. He's not tiger mom. He's the helicopter parent. And then now they have like, what do they call them? Lawnmower parents. They just mow everything out of the way. Joe Biden was the first one of those. And he's still doing it today. I don't know how much he's helping his son with his sobriety. I think it's a really, really bad combination. All right, coming up, Lieutenant Colonel Alan West is here to join us. Ah, oh, one of my favorites. That is next on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Best is three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I'm Mary Walter sitting in the seat for Brian Kilmeade today. So happy to be with you. Joining us now, Lieutenant Colonel Alan West. He's an American Constitutional Rights Union Executive Director, a former congressman from Florida, and he's got some great books out, Hold Texas, Hold the Nation, Victory or Death, and We Can Overcome an American Black Conservative Manifesto. Follow him, as I do, on Twitter, at Alan 
West. Sir, thank you for joining me. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. It's good to be with you, Mary, and greetings to everyone from Port Aransas, Texas, down here on the Gulf of Mexico. On the Gulf of Mexico. Well, wow, that's, that's the place to be, especially in this weather, right, because it's nice, a little bit cooler there. Yeah, we got a nice breeze. I had a nice morning run along the uh, along the beach at sunrise, and it's just perfect. You know, trying to get a couple of days with the family just to relax a little bit. Well, and you're taking time out to join us. Thank you so much for that. I'll it's try to I'll try to make it as pleasant as possible. Let's start off <laughs> since you're on vac- since you're on vacation. I don't know if you heard this, but um, the Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas was on Capitol Hill yesterday, yes. and he had an exchange with Jerry Nadler. And um, I, I thought this was one of the funniest exchanges of everything, of all the insanity yesterday. To me, this was the most um, the most entertaining exchange about the border. Cut nine. Mr. Secretary, I want to address some of the outlandish claims my colleagues have made and put them to rest at the outset of this hearing. My Republican colleagues claim that the border is open. Is the border open, Mr. Secretary? No, it is not. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. The border is not open, and to say so is not only false, but is really an insult. <laughs> all I can do is laugh at that. I, right? I really? I thought, after all the insanity yesterday, I'm like, oh, they still have a sense of humor in D.C. <laughs> no, nah, 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 that's a warped sense of humor. That's like a Monty Python sense of humor. Look, you know, I'm, I live down here in Texas, and we see, I'm sorry about the noise here. But we see exactly what is happening every single day. Uh, and I've witnessed it myself out, you know, walking trails, uh, tracking illegals, uh, helping out the folks down in Kenny County, uh, their sheriff's office. And I saw three illegals just bolt right across the highway and, and hop a fence and get uh, into some, uh, some ranch land. And we've seen where they've cut, you know, the fence open and, and things of this nature. And we still have hundreds of thousands that are coming across. But now with Joe Biden, with this unconstitutional app that illegals can use to, you know, establish a parole process and get processed in Mexico before they even come across, it's just absolutely insane and insidious. And the former Border Patrol chief who just recently stepped down, I mean, he said that the border is, is wide open. The border is not secure. So who are you going to believe, Mayorkas, who is a member of the Biden administration, or the former chief of the United States Border Patrol? Well, I, for one, have all my chips on Jerry Nadler. You that's mean Jabba the Hutt? <laughs> that's who That's who I'm going to. Do you know, fun little side fact here. Back in the day, Donald Trump and New Yorkers refer to him as Fat Jerry. Yeah. And yeah. I'm not a big fan of making fun of the way people look. I, I'm just I'm just not. I think that's kind of it, it's a low blow. A lot of times I, I, I don't like to do that. But I just it, it, Donald Trump naming people names has been going on forever, long before he became president. He always used to refer to him as Fat Jerry. I just love the, well, I'm not going to get into it. The way he wears his pants under his armpits just cracks me up. Um, well, you know, that's what we used to do on the streets growing up as a kid. We used to call it the dozens. I mean, so you got you to gotta have tough skin. Exactly. You, you absolutely do. So the, so the border is open. What do you think of, since you're down in Texas, you hear someone like Mayor Eric Adams in New York say, New York is full because they've taken in, I think, 6,000 uh, illegals. Yeah. New York is now full. I'm sorry. We don't have any more room. Uh, does Texas get to say Texas is full? 
No, as a matter of fact, uh, you got the Biden administration and others bringing lawsuits against the state of Texas because of the buoys that were putting out there on the section of the Rio Grande River between Eagle Pass and Del Rio. Not the entire Rio Grande River, just a small section. Uh, look, you know, New York City, Chicago, all these other places said they were sanctuary cities for illegal immigrants. And now all of a sudden they're saying, well, we don't want any more. We've, we've got too many. So it just once again shows the hypocrisy of the left. Now, I do not believe that we should be transporting illegal immigrants deeper into the United States of America. There should be one thing that we do. We transport them back across the border uh, after we get the right type of uh, biometric information and things of this nature. And we verify if they are actually the parents of these kids that they say they are, because that's just contributing to the human and sex trafficking uh, crisis, and especially the child sex trafficking crisis, as the movie Sound of Freedom uh, clearly shows that we have here in the United States of America. So, uh, no, I, I think that, you know, Eric Adams and many of these others, Chicago mayor, they're just whiners. Well, they're having to deal with a problem they thought was going was never going to come to their doorstep, so it was oh, very course. easy to virtue signal about it. And now they actually have to do something about it. And they're like, well, wait yeah. a minute. We didn't think it was going to be this. And they're not an island like Nantucket, so they just can't put them on a ferry and ship them somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is that, you know, the hope was that all of these illegal immigrants flooding in would destabilize red states. And you also see what Eric Adams tried to do is push those illegal immigrants out into red counties like Westchester County. So this is a grand plot of the left. And when you look at Mayor, I mean, Governor Pritzker over in Illinois, who has said that he's going to make sure the illegal immigrants get driver's license, guess what? They will. They want illegal immigrants to be voting next year in 2024, and they're going to do everything they possibly can to make sure that happens. No, abs- absolutely. And uh, the other side, the other side to that coin, maybe where they're not thinking is that now they're counted in the census. So if they're pushing them into mm-hmm. red states, red states would get more representation. So they might want to rethink that. Well, uh, they, but but the, what they want to push them though into the urban population centers, and and that's what we see happening here in Texas. I, I mean, you know, Dallas County, Travis County, which is uh, Austin, Texas. You know, uh, Houston, Harris County, which is one of the big uh, havens for illegal immigrants. That's what they're trying to do is destabilize the major urban population centers, and it becomes a numbers game because the the population down in the rural areas is not growing. Right. Right. Uh, let, let's flip a little bit to, since we're speaking about Mayorkas, and the the idea now, especially after what happened yesterday with Hunter Biden, you now see Kevin McCarthy and mm. more Republicans coming forward and saying, you know, it's time for an impeachment inquiry, not impeachment, yeah. but an impeachment inquiry, because they can't get the paperwork that they need from from any of the alphabet agencies. They're not cooperating. They're not handing everything over there because, oh, well, it's because it's an ongoing investigation. We can't give it to you. And it, it's all BS, as we know. But this is a way to get yeah. that that um, information. Do you support any kind of impeachment or impeachment inquiry movement? Yes, absolutely so. And I know that there are people that are going to say, you know, that's a waste of time. It's a political enterprise. No, this is about corruption. This is about, as it says in Article 2, high crimes and misdemeanors, uh, bribery, treason. These are the type of things that impeachment was meant for, not over a phone call, not over a hoax uh, with Russia and things of this nature, which is what the left did. So when we actually do have something to look into, and let me tell you, the decision of that judge yesterday, in uh, Delaware really put blood in the water 
for Joe Biden, for the Biden administration, for the Biden family, and definitely for Hunter Biden. So they are scrambling. They are very concerned because this is in the forefront. This cannot be hidden anymore by the leftist media outlets. And we have to get to the bottom of this because there are millions of dollars. You cannot have someone that is cheating on their taxes and they get a misdemeanor or lying on a, uh, a, a gun application form and get no punishment whatsoever. You know, that's at least five years uh, felony offense. Uh, either one of those put together, that's a, that should be 10 to 15 years. So, yes, you, uh, we need to get to the bottom of this with this family. Uh, and this is not about politics. This is about eliminating corruption at the highest levels in our country. See, and I, I'm of the mind that I think we go after Mayorkas. I think we go after Ray. You go yeah. after them. You can do an inquiry into Biden, but not never imp- to get the information you need. But don't impeach him because that gives them the opportunity to put someone like Gavin Newsom or, God forbid, Michelle Obama in, who is far more electable than Joe Biden at this moment. So I would rather see them you know, do the inquiry, but not go through with an actual impeachment of Biden. I'd rather see them get rid of Mayorkas and, and others who clearly are not doing their jobs. Well, it's going to be very hard to get rid of them because the House of Representatives, even in impeachment, can only act as as a grand jury, and they can pass the articles of impeachment. The trial has to happen over there in the Senate, and you know that Chucky Schumer is not going to allow you know the uh, a trial to go past, unlike what we uh, just saw happen down here in Texas with our Attorney General. Uh, we'll we'll yet to see what the Texas State Senate does, but I, I think it's important that we realize that we cannot operate in a realm of fear. Gavin Newsom sucks. California sucks. So if they want to make him the nominee, then we run and we defeat him. If, if it wants to be Michelle Obama, then that's Barack Obama's fourth term. And we uh, work to defeat uh, her, Kamala, anybody. If the American people cannot understand that the progressive socialist left are destroying this country, then we will get the government that we deserve. And, and I think that all the issues are on our side, we need to go on offense and we need to destroy the left and destroy this corruption. Well, we may be destroyed on our own. Uh, can we talk about these? They, they changed the name. They're not UFOs anymore. Now they're UAPs. Yeah. I, can we please? What was wrong with UFO? They're still unidentified. It's just they, they had yeah. to do something different. So they changed it to UAPs. Um, so there was a hearing yesterday on that, too. There were three, I mean, It was just crazy yesterday. So there mm-hmm. was a, a House Oversight Subcommittee had this hearing on UFOs or UAPs. And three different people who are totally sane and and work for the military, came forward and say, boy, you should have seen what I saw. Where do you stand on this? Are they out there? Well, this is the thing I don't want to see happen. Uh, if there are phenomena out there that our pilots are seeing, I don't want them to face any retribution uh, or, or degradation of, of their flying capability or capacity because they're reporting what they saw. Uh, and, and it has to be questioned. Uh, you know, are there, you know, strange little people running around in, uh, you know, outside of, of the earth and, you know, in the, from a different universe? I don't know. I mean, right now, my most important concern is the United States of America. But we should not uh, be, be, you know, having any reprisals against pilots that are concerned about some of the things that they uh, have seen. And mm-hmm. as the one pilot said, you know, he could not, you know, operate at the uh, the G-force that he saw this flying object operate under. So there's something going on. I don't know if there's uh, some other country experimenting with things or maybe even our own government experimenting with some things. But we've got to get to the bottom of it. And there should be no, no reprisals. 
I just think back in the 70s, we never should have sent that thing out there, that SETI project to let people know we were here and we're friendly and this is what we look like. I'm like, what if they're looking at that thinking it's like a menu at the Golden Corral, right? So now they're going to come and come and get us. I didn't think well, that was smart at all. Well, hopefully they're not watching MSNBC because if they are, they're definitely going to come and get us. <laughs> no, maybe they're going to think we're too stupid if they watch that in The View and they'll stay away. <laughs> Lieutenant well, Colonel Alan West, so. thank you so much. Go back and enjoy your vacation with your family. Thank you for joining thank us. You. Have a great week. God bless, Mary. God be with you. <laughs> Bye-bye. You as well. 866-408-7669. 866-408-7669. I'll get to your calls next on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. I'm Mary Walter sitting in for Brian Kilmeade. If you want to jump in here, 866-408-7669, talking about uh, what happened yesterday with Hunter Biden, with Jonathan Turley. Uh, and then you just heard Lieutenant Colonel Alan West talking about immigration and those crazy hearings yesterday, which we'll go into more as well. And also um, the unidentified flying objects. And the impeachment thing, where do you come down on that? A lot of people are saying, oh, I got impeached Biden, got impeached Biden. I'm like, mm. do you just make him unelectable? Do the impeachment inquiry, get the information you want, make as much of it public as, as you possibly can to just make him unelectable and make the Democrats have to decide. Are, and then what will happen if they're not going to go with Biden, they have to go with Harris. Or are they going to dump the black woman? Really? The party of diversity, equity, inclusion. The, I mean, she got the job be, based on her race and her gender. And they're going to dump her? I think you put him in that, that position. Let's uh, go to the phones here. Barry in Los Angeles. Hey, Barry, you are on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Welcome. Yeah, first off, um, I think the Republicans need to take a different approach. I think Hunter definitely will burn down the Democrat Party if he actually faces real punishment. Um, so I, well, what do you, what do you mean by that? What do you mean? What do you mean by that? Like if he I, actually does, if he doesn't get a deal and he, and he has to go to trial, for instance, if he doesn't get a deal, he has to, exactly. go, and he goes to trial. When you say burn down the Democrat party, in what way, what do you think will happen? I think he knows, I'm sure he knows a lot. I'm sure he knows a lot about the, his own family. He knows, probably knows a lot about the Obamas. He probably knows a lot about the Clintons. He's been around. So you think he would flip on, even on his own father? You think he would? He seems like a selfish kind of guy. Look, look at, why, why do you think he loves his father? Did, did anybody ever hear of Hunter Biden when Bo Biden was alive? Bo, Bo was always Joe's favorite. Why do you think, why do you think Hunter, when, why do you think Hunter slept with Bo's widow? Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, they're not. They're not exactly the most functional family, but every family's got its issues. You know, it's it's a good question, and it's an interesting theory, and we don't really know what goes on behind closed doors. Uh, but Hunter comes off obviously as very selfish, and doesn't seem like the type of guy that thinks of others or how his actions could hurt his family or his father or you know his siblings or his kids or anybody else. And and I look at the way he treats Navy. You know, look at the way the whole family is treating his youngest daughter right look at how the whole fit look at his his 
grandfather, who's supposedly such a loving man. He's such a family guy. Joe Biden, he crafted this whole, you know, persona of being this loving, caring family guy. And um, he really isn't, is he? That's a great point. Barry, thank you so much for joining me. I, I appreciate that. That's interesting. You know, do you think Hunter will do that? I never thought of that before. Because I'm like, there's no way Hunter's going to flip. There's no way. But if they offer him some kind of immunity, you don't go out of jail, but, you know, we want to know this information. I just don't see the DOJ requiring that. The DOJ is not about um, protecting Hunter. I think the DOJ is about protecting Joe. And because they're about protecting Joe, I don't know if they would give him that kind of a deal. I just don't think they're going to throw Joe under the bus. You know, the other interesting thing that's going to see, to see, and I didn't have time to ask Jonathan Turley this, would be what happens between um, the Delaware U.S. Attorney Weiss, U.S. Attorney of Delaware Weiss, and then um, the Attorney General. They're throwing each other under the bus. Yeah, he had the authority. I didn't have the authority. No, he had the authority. Okay, I had the authority. We're going to find out somewhere along the line who's making the decisions. Which one is it? And somebody's going to get thrown under the bus because they've told each have told Congress something different. So I'm very curious to see where that goes as well. This is going to be a very, very interesting month until we get to this, this decision. I'm Mary Walter, and you're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. I'm Mary Walter sitting in for Brian Kilmeade. That young man right there was absolutely right. It is a pleasure to be here. Coming up later in the show, Remy Adelecki will be joining us. Uh, he is a former Navy SEAL, and he is a military consultant to Hollywood, and he also is the author of a new book called Chameleon, a Black Box Thriller, and he's going to have a whole series of these Black Box Thriller books. And I love these. I am such a sucker for, like, Brad Thor, and I love those. It's it's really weird because, I, I don't know, I just really love those action thriller books, a lot of intrigue and mystery into them. And joining us shortly will be Griff Jenkins. He was outside the courthouse yesterday in Washington, D.C., where um, the whole Hunter Biden deal exploded, absolutely exploded. I invite you to join in throughout the show. 866-408-7669 is my number. So do we have Griff? I think I see him. Not yet. Okay. Wait for Griff. Uh, In the meantime, what I'd like to do is um, I want to talk. Let's do a little bit here up. He's ready. I was just going to play some audio, but instead we will go to Griff because there's so much to get to. There's just so much news that happened yesterday. Uh, Griff Jenkins. Thank you for joining us. Griff is a Fox News correspondent and he is literally everywhere. Find him on Twitter at Griff Jenkins. Good morning. Griff. Hi. What's going on? Hey, Mary, How are you? I am actually just back in D.C. because we're back in the in the in the nation's capital, and God knows what news is coming. But what a day in Delaware it was yesterday! I, it's like I've never seen anything like it. 
Unbelievable. I was so I'm watching yesterday. I know you were running in and out of the courtroom when they had that first um, recess that where they were supposedly talking to try to hammer this out. And I knew you ran it ran into the courtroom. You're coming out with information and going back and forth. Have you ever seen a trial, uh, I guess, where it's just gone just totally sideways like this and something that you thought was going to be really quick winds up being three hours? Have you covered anything like that before? Maybe this happens more often. I'm just not aware of it. No, it's a great question, Mary, and it never happens. Look, this was a tax evasion, two simple misdemeanor charges. This is as cut and dry and simple as ever, and I've never witnessed. So when she began, the moment we knew it was going south was when Judge Norica asked the prosecution, just so I'm clear, is he – Currently, Hunter Biden currently under investigation. It's ongoing. Yes, Your Honor. Okay, and so could he face additional charges? For example, since they're investigating his overseas business dealings, could they charge him with things like a FARA, Foreign Agent Registration Act charge? Well, yes. Then the Chris Clark, the defense, said, "Whoa, whoa, no, we're not on board with that." And then that that was the first indication it was going south. That's when she finally said, I tell you what, why don't I step out of my own courtroom and let you try and get on the same page? And so we witnessed in real time for 30 minutes the prosecution and the defense try and sort it out. And you had David Weiss, the U.S. attorney from Delaware, that's been leading this year's long investigation, uh, sitting uh, not at the desk of the prosecution, but in the first row behind it. And then you had Abby Lowell, Hunter Biden's big uh, high-powered lawyer, not in the driver's seat, also sitting in the front row behind the the defense. They all of a sudden started to get uh, involved, and then we heard audibly in the courtroom from someone on the defense team said, well, then rip it up. And we were like, wow, oh, my gosh, this is a mess. She came back in and uh, asked if they had you know, reached this deal, and we were, like, confused because it's, it seemed anything but. And then she launched into her uh, further questioning about the constitutionality of the diversion part of the agreement. The piece would allow him to avoid prosecution on the felony gun charge, and right. they had no answers whatsoever for her to satisfy her. And so that's why now she has absolutely uh, discarded it and given each side 30 days to get back to her to say, all right, explain to me how the constitutionality of this thing holds up. And, you know, this is a situation. She asked if there was a precedent. Neither could say that they'd ever seen a precedent. She had never seen it. And she was uncomfortable with being the, quote, rubber stamp on uh, this deal, which many now today are saying – House Republicans particularly saying this exactly what we're talking about, a sweetheart deal. And, and as you said, unprecedented sweetheart deal. And I just find it amazing that it was going to absolve them of any crimes that we might find coming up that have anything to do with any of this. So I think it was so if a drug deal went bad and Hunter Biden was somehow involved and somebody dies, Hunter Biden just like, sorry. Oh, I'm, I, I get a free pass. It's just the weirdest thing. And I, again, I'm not a lawyer. I know you're not a lawyer. Obviously, you you know far more than I because you were there and you cover this all the time. So just amazing to me. What do we know about this judge? Anything? Well, we know this is, this is a, a Trump-appointed judge, Mary Ellen Narika, 
And we also know now that, you know, I, I have covered federal trials for years. And in my golden rule, I always tell people, and that is even when things happen and they're often unprecedented and we're very, <clears throat> excuse me, surprised, you have to remember the golden rule. And that is those federal judges are Caesar in those courtrooms and they wield un a godly power in those courtrooms, and their purview may be small, but when you go before them, you never should underestimate the power that they wield in that courtroom. And the prosecution and the defense learned that uh, a very painful way yesterday when they thought she would just go along to get along and allow Hunter Biden basically to avoid a high-profile uh, drawn-out trial and, and, and for the most part, at least politically speaking, put this quote behind them. And she absolutely uh, wasn't going to have it. And now when, you know, she's asked them to go back and, and, uh, and, and you know, resubmit their, uh, uh, you know, briefings on why this should hold up constitutionally, you have to wonder, Mary, what in what scenario could the defense come up with uh, a revision of the plea deal that would allow Hunter Biden to have immunity from additional charges? Because that was one of the main sticking points that she had with the broad immunity that this was going to bring. And I think, and we'll find out, but uh, my, my gut instinct is that they're not going to have it. I think if they get a plea deal back on the table, it's going to have to be one that uh, exposes Hunter to any additional future charges that the investigation may produce. And then just to so I understand the process, we all understand the process. If that happens, he and he could say, I'm not going to take this deal. But if they agree to it when they come into the courtroom, he already knows the deal and he's going to agree to it, obviously. And, and he could then be tried. But they're trusting that the DOJ will never bring up any other charges against him. And that's how he he can make that kind of a deal. Well, and we'll 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 see. I mean, but again, at the end of the day, it ended with Hunter Biden pleading not guilty to two misdemeanor tax charges that he had intended to come in the court to plead guilty. And right. so you you think to yourself, well, that's upside down. Well, it sure is because guess what? The deal was about the immunity. And I don't see how they get to it, uh, no matter how much they repackage uh, the the box. It's 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 just it's just so fascinating to me. I just find it hard to believe that they're just not going to protect Hunter. I can't imagine that they're not going to find a way to protect Hunter. And I think at this point, and I'm a cynic, that uh, the DOJ, FBI, etc., don't care that everyone sees that they're in the tank for him and or the Biden family. The other thing I find fascinating about this whole thing, and then I want to move on and ask you about something about Trump. Um, what I find fascinating is all along I keep being told on social media that like you know he's got an addiction. You have to. Feel sorry for him. You got to be, be nice. You got to give him, cut the guy a break. I'm like, so wait, so I'm supposed to believe that um, he had this horrible addiction. You know, he, supposedly he's been sober since 2019. He had this horrible addiction, so I should feel bad for him. But I'm also supposed to simultaneously believe that he also traveled all over the world making millions because he's such an expert in energy. 
and they were paying him for that. So was he horribly drug-addled at the time, or was he some kind of weird genius who traveled the world making millions as a as an energy consultant? I- you know, you you zeroed in on a very fascinating part of the hearing, and you know, this was partially a three-hour thing instead of a thirty-minute thing because once they began to talk about the situation, the judge was very thorough in wanting to go, you know, in some cases, line by line about things. And the money he made was one that she wanted to get into, even though they ultimately, you know, got hung up because of the constitutionality of the thing. And during that time, she spoke some of the only times that that I witnessed Hunter talking was when she was asking specific questions. And Judge Norica said to him, so your sober date was such and such, but then you made 600000 here, $1 million here after that date. So you were sober enough to make millions, but not to pay taxes on it. Explain that to me. And he struggled to answer it. I don't remember exactly what he said, but it, it, it ended with his defense attorney, Chris Clark, standing up saying, Your Honor, let me, let, let me, let me try a uh, stab at it. You have to understand during this period, uh, it was very, he was under just a flood. That's the word he used, flood of pressures. And, and his world began to unravel. And then he gave kind of a, a, a canned, more generic answer because he couldn't answer it directly. But that was her point to him that, you know, you can't say you're sober and you made the money, but then you weren't sober enough to pay the taxes on it. Yeah. Absolutely. I just love that suddenly Democrats don't care about people paying their fair share. Um, any any inkling of what's going on with Georgia and President Trump and the indictments? I thought for sure they would have hit him with about, you know, 75 charges yesterday just to take Hunter Biden out of the news. Didn't happen. So their timing is off. But it's going to be happening soon, right? Well, we don't know. And we're watching. I mean, every network is on Trump indictment watch uh, uh, in a sense because we know that the that Jack Smith's grand jury in D.C. is meeting. We know at some point between now and, and likely the end of, of, uh, of August, uh, we expect some movement out of the grand jury in Georgia. And, you know, it's going to be interesting uh, how uh, it impacts Uh, the average American voter across the country who already believe in the House Republicans certainly uh, don't miss opportunities to talk about the two-tiered system of justice. And so if indeed you're correct and former President Trump gets another dozen indictments from from the January 6th portion of, of Jack Smith's special counsel, because remember, he basically impaneled the Florida Miami grand jury because of the documents case. We, of course, know 37 indictments, 37 charges in that indictment. We don't know what, if anything, is going to come of the January 6th election interference portion, but we do know it's active and uh, in meeting, and that's why we've been watching that courthouse here the federal courthouse in D.C. all uh, all week long, every day. Should we get any movement there? Uh, and, and in Georgia, if that indeed also produces indictments, then you're you know the the former president's going to have uh, upwards of fifty plus indictments, and the American people are going to perhaps take a step back and look at it and say, what is this? I mean, here you've got you know right. the president's son trying to get this deal where he would 
not face anything for uh, business uh, influence peddling, but right. yet the former president's just getting racking up indictment after indictment. And so I don't know how that's going to sit. Well, I know a lot of a lot of folks. Uh, you, you you look on Twitter and social media. A lot of people will uh, will have a problem with that. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And listen, if anyone hears anything about the special prosecutor investigating Joe Biden. Um, you know, I don't know, maybe send up a smoke signal. Um, let us know because um, I, I don't even I don't even know the guy's name. So uh, if anybody hears anything about that, that, that'd be great if someone could cover that, because I don't even think he exists. Yeah. You know, one of the things that we're really watching very closely uh, at the White House is the change. And you may have already talked about this, but a little bit of a change in the language. You have to pay very yes. close attention uh, to the language with the president for years now saying, uh, I have no knowledge of my son's business dealings. Now the official language of the White House is uh, the president was never in business with his son. And it's right. like, hold on. You're changing your tune there. Absolutely. Uh, Griff, we got to run. I don't mean to cut you short, but we got to run. Griff Jenkins, thank you so much. And I know you just got in, so you need some time to just take a breath. You are like the most traveling. I would love to have your miles. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Griff. Have a great day. Appreciate you joining us. 866-408-7669. I'll get to your calls next on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Giving you everything you need to know. You're with Brian Kilmeade. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. And I'm Mary Walter in for Brian Kilmeade, 866-408-7669. If you want to jump in here, talking a lot, obviously, about Hunter. Uh, Ron listening on KSLM in Salem, Oregon. Ron, you're on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Welcome. I'm going to say this right now, ma'am. Very good job that you do for Brian. God bless you and your family and those you associate with. Main point is, number one, you cannot reward or enable by his daddy or government behavior of addiction. Two, this is right out of LBJ's plan book, what destroyed the black communities when I grew up 50 years ago as a six-year-old kid in L.A. You can't keep catching and releasing like they're doing in all these cities that you know up even out in Oregon, Washington, California. And the last thing I will say is by enablement, you empowering, they have no faith foundation or accountability, and in the process, they basically get emboldened, prideful, and deceptive every which way possible, and they feel entitled. I, I think that last part especially, I think absolutely is Hunter and having had family members and, and friends who have gone through some kind of addiction, whether it was alcohol or drugs, uh, you you watch, I think it's a parent's natural reaction to want to save their kid. I, I totally understand that. But that realization that, okay, by trying to save my kid, I'm making my kid worse and saving my kid from every bad uh consequence of their actions as especially as an adult child that um you know they're only, i'm only making it worse you got to let your kid hit rock bottom in order for them to crawl out of it and get better and i think that that's important uh, ron thank you you made a couple of very good points bless you have a wonderful week uh thank you for that you know he made the point of you know this is part of the plan you know, when we were talking to um about 
uh, illegal immigration, that these people are going into these inner cities. This is where they're being, quote unquote, dumped, right? They're not on Martha's Vineyard. They're not in Beverly Hills. They're not near Nancy Pelosi's, you know, gated community. Where are they going? They're going into the poor areas, the inner cities. And yet the people in those inner cities, just for whatever reason, I don't know if they're so used to it, they just accept it. And they accept the government treating them this way. And they just vote for it again and again and again. I don't know. Maybe that's starting to change. And maybe those people are starting to wake up when they see what's happening to them. I'm Mary Walter, and you're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Mary Walter sitting in the seat for Brian Kilmeade. You can follow me on Twitter at Mary Walter Radio. And I do have a podcast on Tuesday, 715, live on YouTube and Getter. You can participate, you can uh, leave comments, and we interact with you. Uh, sometimes have some really great guests, and sometimes it's it's just us. And the audio is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just look for Mary Walter Radio on all of those uh, platforms and give it a listen. Join me. Follow me. Let's go let's switch gears here a little bit. This I, I saw um, this gentleman speaking with Pete Hegseth, and I'm like, wow, this this is super interesting. His name is Remy Adelecki. He's a former Navy SEAL. He's a current military consultant in Hollywood. What a cool gig. And he has a brand new book out called Chameleon, a black box thriller. And this is the first in what's going to be a series of books, which I find fascinating. Uh, Remy, welcome to the Brian Kilmeade Show. How are you? I'm doing so good. Thank you so much for having me on, Mary. I appreciate you. So I, I was watching you with Pete, and of course you guys both have the military thing going on there, uh, which yeah. I do not have, but I totally, I have such mad respect for anyone who does something like be in the military or be in law enforcement or, or any of the um, the services where, you know, riding in an ambulance, you're, you're one yeah. of those people who, I can't, I didn't never had it in me to do any of those things, so I have mad respect for people who do so. Thank you for having Thank done you. that. Your story is interesting. Uh, you wound yeah. up in in the Navy in 2022 mm-hmm. after what your bio says is years of making regrettable decisions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, a lot of bad which, decisions. Which I find to be so, so honest and hilarious at the same time because everyone has had a point in their life where they sit back and go, wow, I'm not making the best decisions right now. Yeah. Um, was there one decision in particular that made you say, okay, I've got to, I, I've got to, I got to stop this? And decide I'm going to go in the military. No, there was. I actually got involved in a deal with a drug dealer that went bad. I, uh, I grew up in the Bronx, so I was a product of my environment. And I sold him some products that were supposed to last for a certain amount of time. Uh, those products only lasted for a fraction of that time. And not only was my life threatened, but my mother's life was threatened as well. So um, I made him his money back. And then I decided I need to get out of here. I'm going to end up dead or in prison. And that was when I 
a few months later transitioned and joined the Navy. Interestingly, when I went to go join the Navy, the recruiter discovered I had two warrants out for my arrest. I had a warrant in New Jersey, warrant in New York. She took me to both judges, advocated on my behalf. Both judges expunged my record because this was nine months after 9-11. And uh, she fudged the paperwork, snuck me into the Navy. That was how I got in. Interesting. I, I want to come back to your career because I do have some I have questions for you uh, about military and also uh, you are uh, an immigrant to this country. So I have questions about that as well. Uh, yeah. So so Chameleon, a black box thriller. Now, this to me, this is interesting. When you say a black box thriller, first of all, is there this is a black box is um, an uh branch you have of the CIA. I'm, I'm naive. Is there really a branch of the CIA called the black box or anything like that? Yeah, no, no. Okay, so that's all. made not up. That okay. Yeah, that was completely made up, completely fictitious. I was kind of playing on black ops. There's been so many books that had black ops in it, so I didn't want to do that, so I just changed it to black box, and it's a box of, of programs that the president can reach into when uh, everything else hasn't worked. Okay, so I, you know, I love a good thriller. As I had said earlier, um, when I when I promoted that you were coming up, I'm you know like a big Brad Thor fan. I saw Brad Thor endorsed yeah. your book, um, so yeah. so I this is right up my alley. Uh, so my my first question for you is when it comes to writing something like this, where did the ideas come from? I'm fascinated by these thrillers, people who can write these things. And your book has like the the black the people who are in part of this unit have all of these supernatural capabilities. And and so where does that come from in your brain? Yeah, I want to say supernatural. I tried to keep it very, very grounded. Uh, and so uh, it's all it, it all came from my background for the most part. You know, I, I was a SEAL, but not just a SEAL. I was a human guy. So human stands for human intelligence. So I went to various intelligence schools uh, and learned tradecraft, learned source handling, sneaking in and out of semi-permissive and non-permissive environments. And then after getting all of that training, I went overseas and I had to apply it. And uh, when I was running sources, I learned early on that I couldn't be the same person with every source. I had to be a chameleon uh, for each person. So one guy had a specific personality, I had to be a specific way for that person. And if another person, source had a different personality, I had to adapt like a chameleon to that person. And so I remember being overseas in 2010 and running sources and, and doing all of the cool tradecraft stuff. And I said, this would be a really good idea if there was somebody who was almost like an actor, like a really well-trained actor that's able to become whatever character he needs to become at the drop of the dime, but he's doing grounded and cool work. So when I got to writing, it was just really easy because I was able to pull from my experience and then experiences that other people have had and then keep it grounded without all of the, the craziness. You know, it's interesting. A lot of you see a lot of these books being written by men and women who have been in the military and they draw on those experiences to write these books. So how close is your book to mirroring experiences you had? It's 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 not really. I mean, the character and the uh, is very loosely based off of me. Essentially, I've been telling people it's a fictional extension of my first book, which is my memoir, Transform. Um, uh, but the, the, the events are, are wholly fictitious, right? They're, you know, so 
in, in, in the book, uh, our protagonist and his team is going after uh, uh, the antagonist who is manipulating worldwide stock markets in a very unique and, and intricate way. And he's, he's looking to essentially destabilize Western world economies. I didn't want to do the typical nuclear weapon or the typical chemi- chemical or biological weapon. So I went this route to do something different, especially now coming out of, coming out of COVID and, and, and coming out and even now the financial crisis that we're in, I think a lot of people were able to relate to that, uh, to that topic, that threat of economic warfare. So that's all fictitious. Uh, and, and the missions are very fictitious, but as far as like the spirit of what, um, our character, our main character and our main team does that, I would say that is, that's the authentic side of it. It's so, and, and you already know that there are going to be more because this is a thriller series. Yes, ma'am. Yes, man. There's going to be more. As a matter of fact, I started writing book two. Interestingly, it started out as a screenplay. So I, you know, as you, as you mentioned earlier, I, I started out in the film and TV industry as a consultant and worked my way up into uh, as a writer, WGA writer. So I'm part of the writer strike now. And then I worked myself up to a writer director. I directed my first uh, film, which was a film on organ harvesting, which got picked up to be a big feature film, which we're going to go into production after the writer strike. Uh, and so I say all that to say uh, it, it was a process and that process started with the screenplay and that screenplay screenplay got picked up by a very notable production company went through a year of rewrites and then after that that's when it turned into to a book because somebody read it and said this would be an awesome book series and so uh, i kind of reverse engineered it so yeah this is it is going to be a book series this is just the first one i already started working on book two but it's also going to be a movie as well Oh, congratulations. I'm so happy for your success. I, I'd like Thank to you. just switch gears here. And it, so it is called Chameleon, a black box thriller. Uh, it, and you can get it on, I would assume, on Amazon, bookstores, everywhere you can get a book, right? Yep, everywhere with books. Oh, Apple Books, Barnes and Nobles, anywhere. <laughs> Fantastic. So, all right. Yeah. So, uh, when I read your story, uh, you are, um, as I said, you, you went into the the Navy into 2022 mm-hmm. after you said, you know, those regrettable decisions. I want to ask you a question. Yeah. Given that, you know, right now we are military, which is volunteer, is at an all time low, and a lot of that has to do yeah. with the generation that's eligible. They're just not in shape. They're just not. They're yeah. just not fit enough to be able to do this, and they're too worried about because changing their genders uh and and so is it the idea of having some kind of a draft so we have a military ready god forbid something happens with china or something and we're not caught you know short shorthanded here is the idea of a draft a good idea especially given what the military did for you you know what? I think that it's a phenomenal idea. I think that, you know, uh, there's so many kids, especially via social media, you know, TikTok. We know how China's using TikTok to manipulate young minds, targeting them with algorithms. I think that that's playing a huge role in keeping kids from the military. It's keep, keeping them lazy. It's keeping them out of shape. And it's planting these little seeds that seeds of hate against their own country, America, right? And so uh, I, I think that, you know, a draft, but then also like just more targeted recruiting will be a would it would be a better effort because it is a national security issue. But I'm all for it. I mean, the military was great for me. You know, I, it taught me discipline. It taught me integrity, and it gave me a foundation that I was able to build upon to be where I'm at today. So 
I'm all for it 100%. <laughs> yeah, you, I mean, it, it would never happen. I can't even begin to imagine trying to, to bring that back. Although I do think yeah. that, l- like you said, I, I do know someone of, who went through a similar experience when he was younger. He's much older than you are now and has, you know, went into the military to try to straighten him out. But there are so many kids now who don't have a father figure in the home, who don't have that discipline that I think that having someone kick your butt for two years is probably what you need to really become a man. What they think is a man is not a man or a woman for that matter too. You have a lot of young women who are out of control and uh, it could go a long way, I think, in in helping to mold them. So I wanted to get your opinion on that. And you you hit the nail on the head. You know, the fatherless rate, especially in the inner cities, like somewhere I believe like around 70, 75, maybe even 80% in some places. And And in these same places, you also have high crime rates, high teenage pregnancy rates. Um, and all of these other problems, and it's all attributed to the lack of a father in the home to teach a boy, hey, here's how you become a man and teach a girl, hey, here's how to be loved by a man. And so uh, it's, it, it, it saddens me tremendously, but again, I truly believe even, you know, somebody gets in trouble in the court system, you know, there's an opportunity right there for a judge to say, hey, listen, as long as it's not something egregious like rape or murder or anything, here, listen, here's your op- here's an option, either join the military or go to prison. What do you want to do? Uh, I think that, that that could be a great way to turn turn a lot of a lot of kids around. As a matter of fact, that's what my recruiter did for me. She was from the Bronx and uh she so she knew the environment and she knew that, you know, I better get this kid in the Navy or he's gonna end up going down the right wrong, wrong path. She died two years later of a very rare autoimmune disease. And I remember meeting her brother and her brother told me that's what she would do. She would drive around the Bronx and look for guys who were on the verge of getting in trouble or had gotten in trouble and say, hey, listen, come with me. There's nothing here for you. You're not going to end up anywhere. As a matter of fact, she did it for her own brother when he got a misdemeanor. She flew, uh, flew back to the Bronx off a of leave and helped him get into the Air Force, and it turns his life around. So I truly believe that the military could be an equalizer. And I, and I just – it frustrates me on how social media – has brainwashed these kids to have great disdain for their own country and to not even want to serve in the military. And and serving the military is going to benefit them. You know, as you mentioned earlier, I came from Africa. You know, I I was born in Africa into a very rich family. Nigerian government stripped my family of everything. My father died weeks later. We went from rich to poor. And I came to America, and I started from the bottom and was able to rise to where I'm at now. And so, you know, as a person who reaped the benefits of freedom in this country, it just – I want to try and pass that on and re-educate some of these kids so they see it in a different light, you know. Right. And, and your story really goes a long way in doing that. Let me ask one quick question. I have 30 seconds. Are these books appropriate for, you know, teenagers? I think so. A hundred percent. Yeah. There's not, there's no sex in it. Uh, not much vote, not very little cursing in it. I think it is. And, and there's a key message in there about national unity that I think that, uh, yeah. all everybody needs to, to, to learn about and know, but not to hear of, but also young people, especially. Right. And also hearing your story that goes along with it, I think, I think is helpful. So interesting. Uh, Remy Adeleke, I wish you all the best. What an incredible story. I, I love it from, from the immigration all the way through. I think it's great. The book is chameleon, a black box thriller. Thank you for joining me. Have a fantastic week. You too. Thank you, Mary, for having me on. Absolutely. Thank you. 866-408-7669 is my number. I will get your calls, I promise. 866-408-7669 on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Expanding your knowledge base. It's The Brian Kilmeade Show. 
From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. This is an issue of government transparency. We can't trust a government that does not trust its people. We're not bringing little green men or flying saucers into the hearing. Sorry to disappoint about half y'all. We're just going to get to the facts. We're going to uncover the cover-up, and I hope this is just the beginning of many more hearings and more people coming forward about this. That was uh, Congressman Tim Burchett out of Tennessee yesterday on Capitol Hill. There was a House Oversight Subcommittee hearing, uh, along with all the other zaniness going on yesterday, which goes to show that that when they want to do stuff, politicians can actually do things. They can do more than one thing at a time. So they had this um, hearing And they brought in three retired military veterans who testified yesterday at this hearing on unidentified anomalous phenomenon. So they call them UAPs now. I'm going with UFO because it's in my brain and I'm too old to change now. I've been fascinated with UFOs since I was a kid. When I first found out it was a possibility, I was like, oh, get out. I was so, you know, I was just that kid who was super interested in all of this. And I have to tell you, and you can disagree with me because I know people who think that they're not out there and it's not real, but I really think it is because think of how massive the universe is. It's infinite. We don't know how big it is to think that we're the only life form, quote unquote, intelligent. And I think that's up for debate life form out there, I think is really naive. I do. I think I think it's just really naive, and maybe it's because our brains can't wrap around it, but I, I think it's super naive. So let's get to some of this testimony, okay? So um, there were three men who testified. Uh, there was uh, David Grush, who is a former Air Force intelligence officer. He, uh, he, he talks about the U.S. government, and he was asked a very interesting question. Now, remember, UAP, because they refer to UAPs, are unidentified uh, alien phenomenon. Okay. That's what it stands for. So basically UFOs. So here's the question that was asked. Listen to his answer. Mr. Gresh, finally, do you believe that our government is in possession of UAPs? Uh, absolutely. Based on interviewing, uh, over 40 witnesses over four years and, and, and where I know the exact locations and, and those locations were provided to the inspector general and some of which to the intelligence committees. I actually had the people with the firsthand knowledge um, provide a protected disclosure to the inspector general. Oh, and by the way, it's unidentified anomalous phenomenon. That's why nobody can remember what it means for what it stands for. Anomalous phenomenon. Um, so what did he said? I over four, I know the exact locations where our government is in possession of unidentified anomalous phenomenons, UFOs. And I taught and those locations were provided to the inspector general. I think it's so interesting. All right, let's get one more in here. Here's more with David Grush, and this is with Tim Burnett, Burchett. Excuse me. Has the U.S. government become aware of actual evidence of extraterrestrial, otherwise unexplained forms of intelligence? And if so, when do you think this first occurred? Uh, I like to use the term non-human. I don't like to denote origin. Keeps the aperture open, both scientifically. Right. Uh, uh, certainly, uh, like I've dis- discussed publicly uh, previously, 1930s. 1930s. Oh, and there it goes on. There's more Nancy Mace uh, talking about whether the U.S. government has recovered the bodies of any of these non-human biologics. And you know what he says? Yes. So 
interesting. I loved it. I'm so bummed I missed it yesterday. Had I known it was on, I don't know. I would have had to do picture in picture on my TV. I'm Mary Walter, and you're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Fox News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. And welcome to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Yes, I am Mary Walter sitting in for Brian Kilmeade. Boy, what a crazy day yesterday. Let's, let's, let's remove ourselves a little bit from all the insanity of yesterday because I know so many people who are just like, I can't take it anymore. There's just too much going on. And it gets into every aspect of your life. And we're joined by Professor Gadsad. He is host of the Sad Truth Project podcast because the guy's got a great name you get you got to go with it right this sad truth podcast it's s-a-a-d he's a professor of marketing at the john molson school of business at concordia university and he has a new book out called the sad truth about happiness eight secrets for leading the good life you can follow him on twitter at gad sad g-a-d s-a-a-d professor thank you for joining me well, it's so good to be with you mary well, you don't know that yet, so you might want to hold <laughs> you, you, you might want to hold off of that till the end. Um, <laughs> so I find this so interesting. You know, people write books about happiness and how to be happy, and everybody wants to be happy, obviously. But I, I personally, based on my own personal experience, I found that happiness and learning, quote unquote, learning to be happy, came about the older I got. When I got older. I think I learned more about what goes into being happy. It just happened. I wasn't making a concerted effort to do it. Is it something that comes with age? I mean, to the extent that the old maxim, know thyself, is important to happiness, then there is some truth to what you're saying in that the older that I am, the more I get a sense of who I am. So in that sense, I think you're right. Now, more generally, though, we could all... Uh, you know, abide by certain prescriptions to be happier. Now, some of us are born innately with a sunnier disposition than others. They are so annoying, those people. I, <laughs> I happen to be one of those annoying people. That's one of the reasons why I wrote the book, Mary, because people would always write to me and say, how come you're always dealing with such serious topics and yet you always have a smile on your face, you're always joking around? Tell us your secrets, Professor. And that's how, that that's what, you know, made me think that, hey, maybe I could take a crack at writing a happiness book. Now, about 50% of the differences across people in terms of their happiness comes from their genes. But the good news is that that leaves 50% up for grabs. So irrespective of where you start off in terms of the happiness continuum, you can always do better by adopting certain positive mindsets. And and I, f I found that, you know, I, I remember hearing all this when I was younger about, you know, being a positive outlook and all this. And I and I do think that, you know, genetically, I'm just a glass half empty kind of gal. And I, I'm just that person who I'd rather be pleasantly surprised than let down. So if I keep my expectations low, eh, the odds of me being happily surprised are pretty good. Whereas if I'm, you know, happy go lucky and it's all sunshine and unicorns, the odds of me being, you know, being let down on a more regular basis are higher. So I think that I'm just, as you said, genetically wired to just be that person. I'd be like, yeah, okay, this isn't going to work. And then when it works, it, it were, it's better for me. So, so that part of it, but is it really possible to just turn to, 
I don't know, make that choice of I'm going to be happy. I found that very hard to do. So, so I don't think you, you seek happiness as a, as a general goal. What you do is you, you make certain decisions, you adopt certain mindsets of which the downstream effects will be that you're more likely to end up happy. So at the end of the book, I actually have a quote from Viktor Frankl where he's talking about, you know, don't seek success. Let it be something that, that happens as a result of you leading, you know, a purposeful life. And that's exactly the same mechanism for happiness. So I don't wake up in the morning and say, I need to be happy. But the fact that I have a very loving wife who supports me, the, the fact that I have lovely children, the fact that I wake up in the morning and rub my hands in with glee and anticipation because I love my job. I get to speak to Mary Walter on a beautiful Thursday morning. Oh, you're uh, good. <laughs> so, you know, uh, so it's not, I don't wake up and say consciously, hey, I need to be happy today. I just, I've made certain decisions. I have certain mindsets that then lead me to mount happiness. So what I found, uh, as, as I've noticed, like I said, that I'm just happier than I was when I was younger. I think when we're younger, maybe it's the way we're raised that you're you're raised to, okay, you're, you're going to go to school. You have to do really well in school and you have all these things that you're going to achieve and, and the world is open to you. You just have to do this, this, and this, and you have to take it into your own hands. And, and there's really no blueprint of how to get there, but you just know, and especially in this country, we measure success with the stuff stuff that you have, right? Yes. We're a very consumeristic, capitalistic society. And so it's the more stuff that you have, the better off you are. So when you're in school, I remember I had to have the right shoes and my parents, my parents didn't have a lot of money. And I heard a lot of times, I'm sorry, but we don't have the money. I, I would hear that all the time. You know, I'd, I couldn't have the games that I wanted when I was a kid. I was told to go to the neighbor's house to go play with it. So, so I think there was always that drive to get that stuff, to get to that point in my life where I could get that stuff, right? And I don't think that that's a healthy view of what makes you happy, but I think it's a natural view of what makes you happy. Well, the research certainly supports the fact that uh, going after stuff, as you say, is not the road to happiness. There's tons of... So my, my areas of research are marrying evolutionary psychology and consumer psychology. So there's a lot of research and consumer psychology that pits, you know, the accumulation of stuff, as you said, versus the accumulation of experiences. And Mary, it's overwhelmingly the case that the latter is the road to happiness. So for example, if I've got $25,000 that I can spend on, you know, whichever status products that you could think of versus going to Namibia and taking a culinary class in Tuscany and so on, the latter is going to be over the long run what makes me happier? Well, and it's it's interesting that you, it's interesting you say that. When my my brother has uh, three children, I have no children. My brother has three children, and so you know they're my girls. And uh, he he would always say to us, you know, do not you know, just keep, keep bestowing gifts upon these children to get gifts for birthday and Christmas, which is how we were raised. We only got gifts for birthday and Christmas. And that was it. And he said, I would prefer that you do things with them to create memories. So it's something they will always remember. So maybe he was on to he's also the youngest, so he's happier anyway. <laughs> well, but you know, I, he, he's completely right. So we just returned, uh, before I went on the, you know, on the current media tour, we were in we, meaning my family, my children, and my wife and I, we were in Portugal. And, you know, there's no Maserati or Ferrari or Prada bag or Hugo, Hugo Boss suit 
that could ever match, uh, as you said, the memories that over 16 days we built uh, together. I mean, the adventure that we went on. So, yeah. And, and by, by the way, that's I have a chapter in the book uh, titled Life as a Playground. And I basically argue that even very serious things like, uh, you know, my scientific research, I pursue it with a playful mindset. The idea being that, you know, scientific research is the ultimate form of intellectual play, right? I'm trying to put together a puzzle. I'm trying to see which variables predict which other variables. So, and, and, and that's, you see that in my social engagement. I'm, I'm, you know, I don't take myself seriously, even though I am a very serious professor. I joke around, I can act like a buffoon. So having a playful mindset, whether it is with your children, with your colleagues, is, is truly a, a, a healthy road to being happy. Yeah, I was. I did uh, watch you last night on uh, on Gutfeld. Oh yeah. As as prep for this interview, because unlike Greg, I don't just phone it in. <laughs> <laughs> Kidding, Greg. <laughs> it's good and, that you're rib- ribbing on him because usually he's ribbing on Brian Kilmeade incessantly. So it's good that he receives some of the dish that he puts out. Very exactly, exactly. Uh, but I did notice that you just like always had the smile on your face, and you showed a video of a dog going down the right. um, the slide, right? This, and, and you talked about play, and you talked about you know having a playful mindset and approaching things in that manner. So, uh, so it's, there isn't really a definition of happiness. Everybody has a different thing that makes them happy. So, it, are you talking about finding the thing that makes you happy, whether you're rich, poor, or whatever? and doing that thing. Absolutely. So let's take, for example, in the context of the profession that you choose. So early in the book, I have a chapter on what I argue are the two most important decisions that will either impart great misery on you or great happiness. Number one, choosing the right spouse. And number two, choosing the right profession. But So to your question, I'll focus on the second for now. So I argue that if possible choose a profession that allows you to instantiate your creative impulse. So what does that mean? You could be a chef and create. You could be a podcaster and create. You could be an architect and create. In my case, I'm a professor and author, and I create content. And so the, the mere fact of being you know, immer- you know, immersed in endless acts of creativity is, is, is a sure road to uh, purpose and meaning. Now, the second important uh, metric, if you'd like, for having a happy professional life is what I call temporal freedom. So even though I work very, very hard, no, I'm, I'm never accountable for my time. I mean, yes, I have to come to Fox at 11 o'clock, but I'm a vagabond, right? So I could go sit at a cafe for four hours and work on the next idea of my book. Then I can go jogging. Then I can come back and work on a paper. So the fact that my day is typically not dictated by someone else gives me a great sense of control. Now, contrast that to, say, the factory worker who has so little temporal freedom that even when he or she is able to have a bathroom break is dictated by some union rule, right? And so to the extent that you can make the following choices, choose something that allows you to be creative and choose something that gives you temporal freedom, you're well on your way to being professionally happy. All right, so we're on our way, but there's a lot more of the journey, and we are not done with God's side. We have more coming up on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show.
a talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. I'm Mary Walter sitting in for Brian Kilmeade here with Gad Sad. Follow him on Twitter, by the way, G-A-D-S-A-A-D. I just did. And you can find him on YouTube. Just uh, look for him, G-A-D-S-A-A-D. Uh, he's right there. He has a his own YouTube channel. Check it out. And also the Sad Truth podcast. So this new book is The Sad Truth About Happiness, Eight Secrets for uh, Leading the Good Life. We don't have a lot of time here, uh, but we'll carry this over. And, and so we're talking about what what happiness is, and I and everybody has, I guess, their own version of what happiness is, and and whether how you can get to that point, and that's what he teaches you in the book. One of the things you say though is why your career needs to have a higher purpose than a paycheck. I think though, in many countries, in most countries, people work to live instead. People live to work instead of work to live. You're absolutely right. So. Uh... If you're unable to, you know, implement many of the prescriptions that I offer in terms of seeking the the optimal profession, then maybe you could pursue some of these, uh, you know, objectives uh, in your off time. So let's suppose that you're unable to immerse yourself in your creative impulse as part of your profession because, you know, you're a bus driver and there's dignity in every honest job and that's great. But then when you finish your job, uh, Instead of sitting and watching four hours of TV, of course, unless it's Fox TV, Fox News, in which case it makes perfect sense for you to do it. <laughs> but, you know, why don't you sign up for that ceramics course in the Adult Life Learning Center close to your house? Because you've always been interested in the arts and you've always been interested in ceramics. So, again, it's a mindset. Uh, all things equal, if your job is the one where you can have purpose and meaning, where you could immerse yourself in creativity, where you could have temporal freedom, well, then you've won the professional lottery. But even if you can't do that, to, the, to your point about people who have to work in order to live, there are still ways by which I can be active in immersing myself in creativity, in play, in purpose and meaning. So it doesn't solely have to come from your job. So while you're putting things together on the assembly line, you can sing. <laughs> exactly. I mean, listen, I've sat, I, you know, I've taken, let's say, a bus, uh, you know, with either a sullen, sulky bus driver, and I try to engage him, and it, the conversation goes nowhere. Or I remember one time, I think I was coming from Albany back to Ithaca. Uh, I, I studied at Cornell, which is in Ithaca, New York. And I remember I, throughout the whole ride back, I had this incredible, you know, serendipitous conversation with this bus driver. This is, you know, more than 30 years ago. The way he approached his job was not just that he was driving people from A to B. He was connecting with people. So there is always a way by which we can make whichever job we have seem more exciting and meaningful. One of the things, and coming up on the other side of the, of the break, we're going to talk about that. I made a whole bunch of notes about the world that I see today and happiness. And one of the things I've noticed, and, and you do address in the book, is religion and religiosity and the connection between religiosity and happiness. And I think this is dead on. And we've seen a decrease in religion in one generation. I, I haven't been to a wedding that's been in a church in, in years because everybody's getting married now, you know, in, in a park or under a tree or whatever, on the beach. Nobody's getting married in a church. We have an entire generation that somehow we let them down when it comes to religion. How important is that? that correlation. So there is a moderate moderate size correlation between as you said religiosity and happiness. But right after I make that and and there are very clear reasons as to why that should be the case. Uh, being religious 
you know, makes me part of a community. It creates yes. greater cohesion. Uh, so, so there are very earthly reasons, you know, leaving aside, you know, the divine argument, there are very earthly reasons why my belonging to an organized religion might bring me solace. But then I immediately thereafter, I, you know, I don't want to sort of marginalize people who may not be believers because then they might say, well, okay, so am I doomed at least on that dimension? And I argue that there are many, many ways by which we can have divine moments, even if you are not, uh, you know, strong in terms of your religious practice. So when I write a book and then someone sends me a selfie from Dubai where they're reading that book, that moment where I've connected with this complete random stranger from around the world, where he's now consuming the content of my thoughts, that is a quasi-religious experience. When I go to a beautiful natural landscape and I see the majesty of that landscape, I can still feel a spiritual awe without necessarily, you know, uh, you know, couching it in a religious narrative. So, yes, all other things equal, being religious makes you more happy. But the good news is that even if you're not religious, you could immerse yourself in spiritual awe. I, I when I saw that, I mean, I I am a practicing Catholic, and I was just raised that way, and you kind of get away from it a little bit in your your twenties. But I went I went to a Catholic university, and you kind of get away from it. But then I married someone who is Catholic, and that was kind of our thing. We said we're never gonna we're we're gonna try to maintain this. You know, it's very easy to let it go, and I do see where I I think that it also it engages you more. You have a community, but it also urges you to get out into the community to do good things to enact with to with people in your neighborhood people around you and it does put your world into perspective which i think helps you realize your blessings and how good you have it as opposed to sitting home and talking about you know how miserable life is indeed and 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 again for many people the way you do that is through the you know the the religious pathway but let's say as a professor when i stand up in front of a you know, large classroom, and then at the end of the course, we go on a journey, and then they tell me, thank you, you've taught me so much. That itself is a divine experience, the fact that I have the ability exactly. to do that. Absolutely. All right, we have more with Gad Sad coming up and how to make you happy. We're going to do it by the end of this. I swear you're going to be happy. I'm Mary Walter. You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. I'm Mary Walter sitting in for Brian Kilmeade in studio. Professor Gadsad, host of the Sad Truth Podcast, professor of marketing at the John Molson School of Business at Concordia University, and is the author of a new book, The Sad Truth About Happiness, Eight Secrets for Leading the Good Life. Follow him on Twitter at Gadsad, G-A-D-S-A-N. A D and thank you for staying with us. Super happy about that. <laughs> Let's uh, so we, we talked about what happiness is, and you you have the the path, the ways to find that happiness, and how to make it work in your life because you know so many people don't have the time or the the, the finances, the where to be able the means to be able to to do a lot of traveling. But there are other things you can do. You talked about marriage and work as the two most central factors to how a person how happy a person can be. But is it marriage work? <laughs> it, marriage does involve an element of work, but uh, 
you know, uh, there is no sh- sure way to know that you 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 know you're going to choose the right spouse, but there are certainly scientifically tested um, you know maxims that you could use to increase your likelihood of having a happy marriage. So, for example, in evolutionary psychology, there are two opposing maxims. There's the opposites attract maxim versus the birds of a feather flock together maxim. And it turns out, Mary, that over the long run, if you want to, if, if what you're looking for is securing, you know, the long-term success of your marriage, then birds of a feather flock together is overwhelmingly what research has found, uh, you know, predicts happiness. Now, you, the next question would be, well, birds of a feather flocking on, on which feathers? What, what are you trying to assort on? So it's shared life values, shared belief systems. So earlier you mentioned that your husband and you are both Catholic and that you made a commitment to try to, you know, stay true to your Catholic faith, faith as much as possible. Imagine if, you know, your husband was an avowed atheist. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, your relationship wouldn't have worked, but it certainly would have created a lot more fissures. So if you can find someone who shares the most fundamental, you know, life goals that you you, you both have, you're well on your way to being happy. On the other hand, by the way, for short-term you know, encounters, you're, you're looking for just an exciting one-time uh, you know, sexual dalliance, then opposites attract might be the way to go. Because if I am, you know, sexually restrained and I am shy and uh, introverted and you're the opposite, then that mix might actually be quite titillating. But for long-term, look for someone similar. Very interesting. I, my, we, we do uh, pre-cana. We're a pre-cana couple, you know, so I'm going to take some of this wisdom and share it with them. And I'm going to tell them it's from you and tell them to buy your book. Oh, great. Thank you. <laughs> um, so one of the things I noticed is that we become, we are not happy as a nation, not as happy as we were in the past as a nation. We seem to be becoming less happy as time goes on. I think part of that, my personal belief has to do with less of religion becoming less and less of, um, uh, important in our lives that that's just for me. I think that it keeps you grounded for a lot of reasons. But one of the other things I also feel plays into this, I think you can relate to, I think the further you get away from your immigration story, the less you appreciate what you have. And I think appreciating what you have and how good you have it is one of the keys to just being happy with what you have instead of trying to get more stuff. Oh, so, such a good point. So some of your our listeners uh, may not know my my background. So I I grew up in the Middle East. Uh, I was born in Lebanon, lived there the first eleven years of my life, and then we had to escape uh, during the first year of the civil war. We were Lebanese Jews, and so it became a bit precarious to be Jewish in the Middle East. Now the fact that I went through the the horrors of the Lebanese civil war paradoxically actually is a pathway to exactly to your point to being happy because whenever I feel like going, you know, getting down on myself. So for example, I I've had on this media tour, I've had several flights canceled. As a matter of fact, during the break, I just found out that my return ticket to Montreal has been canceled. So I can easily start, you know, falling into the quicksand of getting angry and frustrated, but then I just have to stop and say, wait a second, you escaped execution in Lebanon. You're going on a media tour speaking to all kinds of interesting people. Okay, so you'll have to wait an extra few hours at the airport. Suck it up, right? So the fact that we can always contextualize whatever is irking us, whatever is is pissing us off in light of other things that we could be facing is certainly a, a good mindset to have to always be happy. 
So along those lines, uh, one of the things that my little secret I always used to do is when Maury Povich was on. Remember that show? Maury, sure. are you the daddy? Right. So I would watch that working out in the morning. Be, and people are like, why do you watch that trash? I'm like, well, you know what? No matter what God's going to throw at me today, I'm not going to be on Maury looking for my baby daddy. <laughs> so it kind of puts it into perspective for me, right? It's just kind of like, okay, you, there's going to be something. Something's going to drop on you. Very nice. It's not going to be that bad. <laughs> can I, before you go on to a uh, next question, can I just continue with the thread of sort of gratitude and happiness? Just... Yes, absolutely. So in the last chapter of the book, I tell two stories, and I specifically chose those stories because they, they, they perfectly highlight what we're talking about. So story one is about David McCallum. I'm sure that most of your listeners have never heard of him, but he's one of the most remarkable guests I've ever had on my show, and I've had a lot of incredible people. Uh, he spent 29 years in prison for a murder that he was eventually exonerated of. Oh and when he came on my show, and he was he was so dignified, so bereft of vengeance. And I, I looked at him, and I said, you know, you must be the reincarnation of Buddha because it seems impossible that someone could be so, uh, you know, filled with gratitude given that nearly three decades of your life were stolen from you. You're a much better man than me because I would want to, you know, burn the world down, you know, in a sense of, you know, vengefulness. And so he, he then tells me this very powerful story that his sister uh, is stricken with cerebral palsy. She's been bedridden for much of her life, and yet she still finds time to smile. And so he said that I have nothing to complain about given what she's going through. And so even a guy who spent 30 years, 29 years in prison can find uh, the context to, you know, to pull out his happiness. The second story is, is someone that I met I was a professor at the University of California, Irvine, um, many years ago, and I was working at a cafe, and I had a whole bunch of books you know, lying around. A gentleman comes up to me said, and starts a conversation. He was doing his Ph.D. at UC Irvine on the homeless folks, and he had immersed himself within the homeless community. He was a wealthy – he came from a wealthy family. Now, you know, the irony of life, many years later, he himself lost his money and became homeless, and so he had been tracked down – and they asked him, you know, are you happy or are you miserable given, you know, you have a PhD, you were from a wealthy family, now you live in your car. And his answer, again, speaks to gratitude. He said, number one, I have access to the gym so I can maintain a healthy body. Number two, I've got a, a public library card to the Newport Beach Library so I can go in and immerse myself in knowledge. I've got nothing to feel sorry about. So a guy who wow. is homeless living in his car can still you know, see the beauty and the majesty of life. So, you know, don't get down, be happy. Well, I got a long way to go. I don't know how, how happy I'd be living in my car. I got to <laughs> tell you, there are certain, there's certain limits. So I don't know how, how well that would work for me. Uh, in a couple of minutes that we have here, because I have I do have so many more questions for you. One of the things I've noticed, kind of getting a little political, is, and I don't know if you deal with this uh, aspect, and if you don't, that's fine, because then we can move on. Um, Joe Biden with his son Hunter and addiction and everything that's happening. I think Joe Biden is loving his, his enabling his son by loving his son and wanting his son to be happy and giving him everything and seeing what has happened with this kid's life. I mean, kid, he's an adult, but still Joe Biden's son's life and, and anyone who, who is an addict, it's hard for parents to, to not want to make them happy. And is it the wrong thing to do? Uh, I mean, specifically as relating to, to someone with an addiction, yes, you never want to be the enabler. 
But, you know, parenting, I, you said that you don't have children. I mean, parenting is one of the most difficult jobs that I've ever had. And, I mean, you know, I, I live a very challenging professional life because it's very, very hard to get angry at your children, right? When you love your ch- So when I go off on one of my children, I mean, deservedly so because they've done something idiotic and so on, then I'm racked after, you know, the encounter, I'm racked with a sense of sadness because I would love to do nothing more than just hug them and tell them how great they are and how much I love them all day long. But part of being a good parent is to be able to step in and say, no, this is unacceptable. You cannot do ABC. So the fact that he is enabling his his son to be this kind of Caligula orgiastic, you know, addiction guy doesn't seem like a, a good pathway to me. So having sympathy for him, all these people saying, oh, you have to have sympathy for Hunter. You know, he's an addict and you have to, it's like, there's a, you can be sympathetic to someone, but hold them to, you know, responsible for their actions at the same time. You can do both of those things. I, I ask, I, I've had family members who have had addictions and, uh, you know, and I, and I saw the different paths that were taken with different family members and the one who hit rock bottom you know, and, and wound up in a, in a hospital, woke up in a hospital one day. That's the one who kicked the habit. Right. And, and, and let me, I can personalize it to myself. So, you know, I've never had an addiction uh, unless you want to say, you know, I, I used to be much heavier. I lost 86 pounds uh, from my heaviest to now. Uh, and I actually talk about this in the book. So let's call it a, quote, food addiction. Okay. Well, for me to lose that weight for 18 months I had to, every single day, make the correct decision, right? If at any point I deviated from that, I would have never been able to go on the 86-pound weight loss journey, right? So anything that involves this great gargantuan goal is going to require self-control. It actually speaks to a really important psychological trait. uh, It's called locus of control. So people who have internal locus of control attribute things Internally, So I did well on the exam because I studied hard or I did poorly on the exam because I didn't study hard. External locus of control people attribute things that happen to them to the ex- ex- external world, right? It's God that did it. It's, it was fated. It was written in the sky. My business didn't succeed because the customers are too stupid to understand how good my product was. And so when it comes to addiction-related issues, you really do have to have an internal locus of control mindset. I had to make the right decision for 18 months, and voila, I get on the scale, and I'm 86 pounds lighter. Well, that's another thing we share. I lost 60 pounds. Wow. So I know exactly what you're talking about. I ha- We're going to wrap this up. I still have a lot more questions, uh, but you can get a lot of the answers yourself. The Sad Truth About Happiness, Eight Secrets for Leading the Good Life by uh, Gad Sad. So we've got more coming up right here on The Brian Kilmeade Show. The fastest growing talk show in America. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Mary Walter in for Brian Kilmeade with Gad Sad. Uh, He is the author of a new book, The Sad Truth About Happiness, Eight Secrets for Leading the Good Life. So talking about happiness and younger people and younger people reporting that they are not as happy as previous generations. 
I think, and I think we have a lost generation. You can disagree with me. I think we have this lost generation, which is why you see them, you know, wanting to change their bodies physically because, you know, that'll make me happy if I could just be a boy or if I could just be a girl. That's how they're going to find happiness. I think part of it is because, and this may be a generalization, but liberals in general to me seem to be very, very unhappy people. They seem everything is miserable. There's always something. That statue offends me. That box of rice offends me. I don't like that picture. This is, you didn't call me by my right pronoun. Everything is explosive to them and everything is a crisis. And I think it's impossible to be happy when the moment you wake up in the morning, you're offended as soon as you turn the television on. Or you couldn't be any more uh, correct, Mary. As a matter of fact, I, I do have a small section in the in the current book where I talk about the link uh, between political orientation and happiness. And to your point, many, many studies have found that conservatives on average are happier than liberals and slash progressives. And I offer a a theory as to why that is, which again speaks to your point. So if I'm a conservative, by definition, the word means that I'm trying to conserve something. So existentially, I feel that there are certain values in my society that are worth conserving. On the other hand, if I'm a progressive, I'm existentially unhappy. This is a bad world. We are a systemically racist uh, country, uh, you, you know, and on, so, so on and so forth. And therefore, around the corner is where utopia lies. And therefore, as I wake up, if I'm a conservative, I'm filled with gratitude and, um, and, and joy that we – I do live in a good place, notwithstanding that there might be things that I, that I can improve. But if I'm a progressive, it's all bad. Let's burn everything down and start over. So you're you're exactly right. Yeah, they, they suck the fun out of everything. They're just – I can't even imagine hanging around with them. It's, it's, it's just going to be miserable. I mean, okay, life ain't great, but really? Ugh, I, I just, right. just can't, can't do it. Okay. We were just – well, this may be something a bridge too far. Oh, one other thing before I go there. Um, your, your immigrant story and you talk about how, you know, when you came to this country compared to where you were and you get further away from that immigrant story, how do, how do parents maybe who are listening to this, who maybe want to instill that, that sense of gratitude in their children, Right. how do they keep that alive? Because the further you get away from that immigration story, as we said, you know, you, you don't appreciate as much of what, why your ancestors came to this country. Well, so what you have to do with your children is uh, expose them to the full buffet of societies that exist out there and to let them you know fully understand that the the west the or certainly the american experience is astronomically anomalous when it comes to the full human history right much of human history is not where you have freedom of speech and freedom of conscience, right? We're, we're defined by precisely the fact that we are always ruled by emperors and kings and dictators and autocrats. And so expose them to the full litany of possible human experiences and then stop whining about being misgendered at Wellesley. <laughs> yeah, it makes, it makes me want to misgender them on purpose. Um, okay, we, there was a hearing yesterday about the existence of UFOs. Do you believe? You know, I'm, it, I'd like to believe because there is something quite romantic about the idea that there, you know there are there are aliens out there, maybe that are trying to 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 connect with us or not. But certainly, based on the evidence that I've seen, I'm certainly not on the UFO camp. 
And I don't think we want them to connect with us. Like I said, they could be looking at us as like the buffet line at the Golden Corral. You don't know. You don't know what they're looking for. All right. Where can people get your book? So they can order it, of course, on Amazon. They can go to my publisher, Regnery, and order it there. It's available you know, in many brick-and-mortar stores. Uh, so please get it. I I can assure you that you will have fun. You will learn many things. And uh, send me a selfie with you interacting with the book. That will make my day and it will make me happy. Oh, great. And where can people find your podcast, The the Sad Truth Podcast? Uh, So it's on YouTube and it's also as an audio podcast all over the place, you know, Apple, Spotify, iHeart. And uh, it it consists both of long form chats, but also me just getting on for 10 minutes and ranting about something that pissed me off that day. And that itself makes me happy. May I just say, I find it hard to believe that A, anything ticks you off, and B, you would rant about anything. <laughs> right? Well, thank because you. you're just the nicest guy. Thank you. You're very sweet. It's true. Like I said, I, I watched uh, Gutfeld last night, and I was like, okay, since I knew you were coming on the show, I'm like, I want to want to know more. And you're just constantly smiling I, the whole time. I, I felt a bit objectified at how people were largely talking about my stupendous looks. Yes. Ex- well, you know, take it and run with it, you know, get take the compliment while you can. <laughs> uh, get sad. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate you. You can also find him on YouTube as well. I'm Mary Walter. Thank you so much for joining me on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.